Chapter 14 of Daylight Land by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 The Hermit of Fraser Canyon. We are not ourselves when nature, being oppressed, commands the mind to suffer with the body. He who attempts to describe in words this majestic exhibition of nature advertises his ignorance of the limitation of letters and his lack of artistic discernment. Even the tongue of Pericles, with its perfect command of Grecian vocabulary, would have faltered and grown dumb had he stood where we stand and attempted to describe what we see. It was the judge who spoke, as we stood grouped at a point midway between the extremities of the great canyon. "'Nevertheless, there are those who expect me to do it,' I remarked, "'and will hold me at fault if I fail.' "'Never you mind that,' responded the judge, speaking with emphatic earnestness. "'Be true to your knowledge of language and your own sense of the fit and the modest. Here is a work of God whose wildness and awful sublimity is not only beyond verbal description, but so far beyond it that only scribblers would attempt it.' Here is one of the rare exhibitions of the world. Niagara matches it in nature. The halls of Karnak and the Great Pyramid are to be classed with it among the works of men. I have walked through the one and camped a week at the base of the other. This exhibition makes me hold my breath. If the world would learn what is here, let them come and see it. How can you describe that mad turmoil of water? How picture with your pen this awful environment of mountains? Can you portray this terrible gloom, or put on your pages that far-off gleam of ice on those summits, or send through the leaves of your book the hoarse roar of yonder whirling, thundering flood? Let your artist attempt it if he must. This failure will demonstrate the powerlessness of the pen. Victor Hugo himself would close his notebook were he here. Lay down your portfolio, and we will sit on this rock and see the day shrink out of the fearful gorge, and the night push her black columns into it. We four were together. We had left the car at Yale, and followed the old government road up the canyon. The day was warm, and we had decided to camp one night beside the terrible river which flows wide and deep, swift and strong, with rush and hiss and roar as of thunder between the cliffs which lift their ridges to the stars. "'Had the old Greeks known this,' said the judge sententiously, as we sat on the ledge gazing at the mad river, "'they would have made it the entrance to Hades. Here is such a Styx and Acheron as they never dreamed of. Charon could never have ferried a stream like that,' I said, pointing to the whirling water below. "'They would have made him go with a current,' responded the judge. Down with a current that old freighter of souls would have gone, down between those ledges and through those ghastly heaps of foam, out of sight, with his pale passengers forever and ever. Nothing beyond this for a long time was said. We sat in silence, we four, all eyes, all ears, all feeling. We heard the roar of the river rise mightily and hoarsely up between the cliffs, it was that of a lion sounding in the solitude of the desert or amid the ruins of a tenantless city half buried in desert sand. We saw the light shrink and fade from the gorge as that of life shrinks and fades from the glassing eyes of the dying. 
we saw the day pallid with fear climb the cliffs as if stricken with terror at the growing gloom below frantic to reach their tops and rush with headlong haste after the declining sun we watched the gloom spread over the river and the white of its rage flash fitfully through it as it deepened we saw the darkness gather and grow dense along the great forested slopes above and sway out like black fog from either side of the chasm until it met in the middle air and then through the smother of gloom we saw the heavens make revelation of glorious globes of flashing orbs and shining worlds proof that above and beyond this awful gorge this chasm of chaos this cave of night the universe of law and light still held its brilliant course and kept its benignant movements wheeling steadily on i trust said mr pepperell as he rose from the rock that i am not unmindful of these august surroundings and i shrink from rudely disturbing your reflections but i confess that i am as hungry as a bear and if colonel goff will help me find some cones i will start a fire and we will see what we have in the hamper for supper what a repast we four campers had that night our fire was kindled on a wide flat ledge which projected slightly over the river above us two giant firs rose loftily below us the river seethed and flashed across the whirling current our campfire built its shifting tremulous shaft of red blood color we broiled a ten-pound salmon which an indian had speared for us as we strolled up the road that afternoon our provisions were ample and we feasted our hunger full and when the meal was made we sat and fed the fire with fresh cones and sticks and talked talked gravely as men of sense so circumstanced might i met with a strange experience here a year ago said mr pepperell suddenly and one of my motives for taking this journey was to visit this canyon and this very spot where we are as strange an experience as ever befell a man he added musingly tell us of it cried the judge earnestly tell us your tale of the canyon we did not visit this awful gorge to sleep but to see listen and feel and a strange tale told at midnight amid these surroundings would be most apropos indeed it's not so much a story as an experience replied mr pepperell strange and wild enough to suit this spot and hour and which you can all share with me if you choose it will be an encore to me but a novelty to you what do you mean interrogated the judge in a surprised tone i don't understand you sir in place of direct reply mr pepperell said do you know colonel goff that you are sitting on as strange a tablet as the hand of man ever traced before he died to trouble the world after he died jupiter crickets cried the colonel as he jumped to his feet what do you mean mr pepperell i will show you what i mean he replied and i will show you what i found here a year ago yes we will all go through the same experience together that i went through alone and you shall tell me what you think of it whether he was mad and how he died and where he lies buried of whom are you talking cried the judge excitedly for the suddenness with which colonel goff had risen and mr pepperell's mysterious words had excited all of us man alive of whom are you talking of the hermit of fraser canyon 
responded Mr. Pepperell. That is what I call him, because that is what he calls himself. Look here. And he began to brush the leaves and moss from the stone upon which Colonel Goff had been sitting. What do you make of that? You are a trailer? And he looked up at me. Can you translate that sign? And behold, as we looked, we saw chiseled into the ledge the following symbols and figures. Reader's Note in the book is an illustration with a stone. Upon the face of it are a series of squiggly lines which intersect each other. Towards the bottom of the face is the number 150. Upwards, in the middle, is the number 200. And at the very top is the number 80. And to the right of this is a large capital letter C. And reader's note. Easily enough, I responded as my eye caught the tracing clearly in the light of a torch I held over it. It means, go 150 feet in a straight line from this spot toward yonder cliff, then 200 feet at nearly right angles to the left, then nearly 80 feet obliquely, and you will come to a cabin. The curved lines are only intended to deceive and bewilder. He converted his straight lines into a labyrinth to deceive. Well done, exclaimed Mr. Pepperell. You have read at sight what it took me a week to decipher. By chance I built my fire here, and the light of it I saw that root tracing on the ledge. It puzzled me. It tormented me. It threw me into a fever of curiosity. I studied it for days and nights, and at last I got the clue. Gentlemen, we will now do what I did one night last year. I want you to see this cabin and what is in it. Will you come? Certainly, I answered. But, Mr. Pepperell, I continued, a year brings avalanches in this country, and I warrant your cabin won't look as when you saw it. The cabin which that C stands for was built by a builder whose buildings never fall. Judge, take those two candles. Colonel Goff, you carry the lantern. Mr. Murray, you and I will take a torch. Here, let me go ahead. I have measured this line before and with this he started carefully on, we following. Slowly, with the aid of our lighted torches, we worked our way toward the cliff for the one hundred and fifty allotted feet. Then Mr. Pepperell ran the line two hundred feet to the left. His memory had evidently retained a vivid remembrance of the trail, for he hesitated at no point of it. At the end of the two hundred feet he turned obliquely to the left, and the eighty feet brought us to the very front of a gigantic cliff. "'Where's your cabin?' I cried exultantly, not doubting but that the snow-slide had swept it into the Fraser. "'Where is the cabin that the sea stands for on the diagram, Mr. Pepperell?' "'Here it is,' he responded promptly. "'Look!' And he lifted his torch to the face of the cliff, and lo, there painted on the front of the rock was a letter C. An exclamation escaped us as we crowded close up to the ledge to inspect it. It was a monstrous letter, at least three feet in its perpendicular length and fully two feet across. It was painted in some gray mixture which nearly matched the color of the rock, and was not discernible save upon close inspection. It was enlarged at the back of it, and united the curved extremities so that it rudely resembled the shell of a clam even as our artist has drawn it. "'What in the world does this mean?' I exclaimed, looking at Mr. Pepperell. His response to the interrogation was singularly direct and instructive. He took a chisel-shaped instrument from one pocket 
and a hammer from another, and placing the edge of the sharp steel at the central point of the letter, where the lines connected the extremities, struck it sharply with a hammer, and a section of the rock coincident with the painted form of the letter stirred, and we saw that it was only a cunningly devised door fitted into an aperture on the ledge. "'Great heavens!' I cried. "'The sea of the diagram by the river does not mean cabin at all, but a cave.' "'Precisely,' returned Mr. Pepperell complacently. "'It took me a long time, but I guessed the trick at last. "'Gentlemen, will you enter the hermit's cave?' "'And he stepped through the strange door while we followed.' The sensation we experienced as we passed through that strangely contrived entrance and stood in the mysterious apartment can better be imagined than described. We were too astonished at what we saw to say a word. We stood and gazed in silent amazement at what we beheld, revealed by the light of lantern, candle, and torch. The cave was of large size, larger than an ordinary chamber. In the center stood a table strongly constructed, the legs of which were grotesquely carved. Skill, patience, and artistic cleverness had wrought out its strange and ludicrous designs. On the smooth surface of it a clown's head was curiously traced, the face of which was indescribably humorous. It was Mirth's own countenance in the act of laughing. The wall of one side was literally covered with portraits of men, animals, and strange pictures born of mad conceit, here a death's head grinned at us. Below it a culprit was hanging from the gallows bar. The face brutal, contorted, with a dangling body horribly flexed. A dreadful bit of realistic work to haunt the memory and terrify sleep. In juxtaposition to it was a foundering ship, in the act of going down. The stern already under water, the prow lifted, and men clinging to its rigging. "'This is horrible!' said the judge as he stood gazing. The man was mad. Perhaps, answered Mr. Pepperell, but look on this side. Hold up your lights, all of you. I want you to get the full effect. We turned with hands uplifted, holding the lights high. A canvas, and on the canvas the portrait of a woman, a woman in the full bloom of her loveliness, a brunette, the queen of the Creoles she might have been when living, so rich, so ripe, so perfect was she. A vision of female possibility such as floats in the air before the eyes of the opium-eater as he lies half asleep in his sensuous heaven. Her head was small, shapely, and crowned with braids of glossy blackness. Her eyes were large, long, softly black, like the star-lighted dusk of a tropical night. Her lips were full, curved, slightly parted, the rounded neck and shoulders were modestly revealed, and the bare, perfectly modeled arms were lifted as to a loved one coming to their embrace. The face was full of fire, of passion, of expectancy. But, oh, horrible, horrible sight! A dagger was driven to its hilt in her breast. "'My God!' exclaimed the judge. "'This is too dreadful!' And he turned his back to the pictures shudderingly. "'What do you make of it?' I asked as I turned away from the same impulse. "'Judge, what do you make of it?' "'Make of it?' he responded. "'It is perfectly clear that that lovely woman was his wife, his love, or his mistress, "'and she was murdered in the very act of him 
embracing him, and his awful punishment or fate drove him mad. This cave is an artistic bedlam, a, a mad painter's hell. I think, said Colonel Goff, he murdered her himself, caught her in the act of unfaithfulness, and his hand drove that dagger home. The remembrance of it made him mad. Gentlemen, said Mr. Pepperell, seat yourselves around the table. I wish to show you something. I spent a night in this cave, and I discovered some of its secrets. Why did you not stay to find them all out? I asked. You certainly had made a good start. Simply because I was afraid to stay longer. Afraid I should go mad myself if I did, he answered. Look at this. And pressing his finger to the table, the clown's head flew up, and underneath it was a recess. And in the recess was a package of manuscript. Read this, he said, and drawing out a leaf of the manuscript, he handed it to me. It was a beautiful bit of artistic embellishment. The text was delicately printed. Each capital letter was ornamented with some lovely or quaint device, while around the sheet was a border of vines and flowers beautifully executed. It was a metrical composition. Here it is. Forgotten. I passed the gates of death, and in the light I looked to see those whom I thought to meet. But none were there. I knew no angel face. They who had gone before, yea, even those who with love's dread of parting from the loved, were torn out of my arms, had found new lovers, and now were fixed forever in new lives. They had forgotten me, and there I stood at heaven's gate and saw that I take the old search up to find some faithful one to serve and love me as I had been loved. I could not do it. Nay, I was too faint, too tired from the old seeking out of which I had just come. I turned and from the gate, called Beautiful, I downward went unto the other gates, within which lies a land, all cold and dim, to which those go at wish, who have lost all and find forgetfulness. Into this land, cold, dim, and dark, I went, that being thus forgot I might forget. That's a strange thing, said the judge. Here's another, remarked Mr. Pepperell, and he handed me the second sheet. Read that. I did as requested, and read, A visit. Beyond the glorious gates I met a soul, that on the earth had been betrothed to me, she loved me with a love of time and sense, the love which women give to mortal men, and out of which come births, and later, graves. In joy I ran to her with arms outstretched, outstretched to fold her in my fond embrace, and with warm lips pressed kisses on her mouth, as I had done in the dear days below. But she with startled eyes stared full at me, and speechless stood, as if struck dumb with fright, at sight so strange she knew not what it meant. I spoke her name, that name which was to me, as sweet as cry of newborn babe to her, who in her pain hears that sure sign of life, and panting feels the joy of motherhood. But she stood coldly still, nor gave a sign that she remembered neither name nor me. A new name had been given her above, in death she lost one life, another found, and what she found was not as what she lost. She knew not me nor anything that was, and so I turned and gladly journeyed down to earth and human life 
and its warm loves. This is uncanny business, this reading a dead man's private papers without legal permission, remarked the judge, after we had sat in silence a moment. I feel as if I were one of a party engaged in robbing a grave. Here it is, here it is, suddenly exclaimed Mr. Pepperell, as he lifted a small package neatly folded from the bottom of the recess. Read this, Mr. Murray, and then I will show you something that will startle you. And he passed a portion of the package over to me. I took it from his hand, and, smoothing it out carefully on the table, proceeded to read the following strange communication. The last will and testament of one whose name is hidden, who alone knows himself, and who is known only unto God, as the hermit of Fraser Canyon. I am mad. The proof of it is on these walls. What drove me mad is also on these walls. I killed her. Guilt is on us both. Her portrait, love, conscience. Here I have lived eighteen hundred years with her in torment. The ecstasies of heaven and the agonies of hell have been mine. Ha, 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 ha! Yes, I am mad, but I am cunning. My mind never stops. It spins like a buzz-wheel. I have more than mortal power. I can live without food. I have clairvoyant sight. I can see the bottom of the Fraser. It is solid gold. I can hear through a mountain. I leave my body and visit worlds. I come back and enter it again. I can become incorporeal at will. I am a unit of pure consciousness, a receptive essence, an atom of universal apprehension. Amen. Let him who would know a mystery read. Let him who would solve it obey. Let him who dare put his ear to the breast of the woman and listen. Judge Doe, said Mr. Pepperell, go to the canvas. Put your ear to it and listen. What do you hear? Water, answered the judge in astonishment. The sound of running water as it plunges over a distant fall and pours softly down among stones. And he returned to his seat on the bench. I read on. Have you listened? Has the heart of the mountain told you its secret? Have you heard the river that pours from under the glacier? Do you know that its sands are pure gold? That all the gold in the Fraser comes down that stream? I have seen, I have digged my grave on its bank. I shall sleep when I die in a chamber of gold. He who finds me might purchase the world. He will have all that men craves but one thing. He will not have love. Hugh, Hugh. He is mad, you who read say. So I am. I know it. But I am cunning. The hidden I found, and what I found I have hidden. I mock you. I laugh from where I am hidden. My eyes are on you. I am near, a foot away, a yard distant, a span off. Why don't you find me? I am grinning at you at this moment. Ho, oh, ho! This is raving madness! I exclaimed. I will read no more of the trash, and threw the sheet on the table. Read to the end, cried Mr. Pepperell. Read to the end of it, then I will show you something. Thus argued, I read on. Are you wise? Are you brave? Are you cunning? Can you read a riddle that is plain? 
then read the riddle that I write on the page that comes next. Here it is, cried Mr. Pepperell. Here is the page that comes next, and on it, the madman's riddle. Who can read it? A white sheet of paper, blankly white. That was all. What can you make of it? It was Mr. Pepperell that put the question. Make of it? Nothing, I answered. The man was mad. Wait a moment, he said. Now look. And lifting the blank sheet, he held one of the candles under it a moment, and out of the white blankness started this sentence in letters red as blood. He who calls these letters forth calls me from my grave. I am here with you. And he dropped the sheet, across whose white surface stretched the red lines upon the table. We were on our feet like a flash, we three who had been sitting, on our feet, staring at the red letters, and at Mr. Pepperell, and at each other. Gentlemen, he said, I got thus far a year ago, and stopped. I was alone, remember, and I went out of this cave like a scared boy. But I am not alone to-night, and I will stay it through, whether living or dead come. Wait. Was it a sound? Yes, it was a sound. The sound of one moving. Or was it the wind outside? Which? We held our breaths listening. My heart sounded as it beat in my breast, like a bell. The canvas! The canvas! The woman is moving from the wall, whispered the judge hoarsely, and his face whitened to the color of chalk. This is nonsense, I said, pulling myself together stoutly, but my veins shriveled horribly, and the roots of my hair prickled in my scalp. This is nonsense. It was the wind that did it. And I took a quick step forward and plucked the canvas with a jerk from the wall. My God! It was the judge's voice, and I heard him drop heavily onto the bench. Back of the canvas stood a man, the madman himself. He was grinning insanely at us, and then with a yell he jumped full at me. The table was overturned and every light extinguished. We were not cowards, nor were we proof against such a shock. We acted, as I presume, as any four men would naturally act whose senses had been thus suddenly and frightfully assaulted. We probably all yelled. I don't know. I know I did, as I jumped backward. No man living could have stood unmoved such a revelation as the fall of that canvas made. The first thought that came to me in the recoil of feeling and result and return of sense was for light. I felt for my matches and struck one mechanically. Mr. Pepperell kindled a fuse at the same instant. We lighted the candles, then the lantern, and for a moment stood looking at each other. See? said Mr. Pepperell as he pointed at the hole in the wall where the canvas had hung. It was an aperture in the side of the cavern, a large oblong crevice in the cliff, the entrance to an interior passage which led deeper into the mountain. The riddle is solved anyway, Mr. Pepperell, I said. It was no ghost, but a man. He slipped as he jumped at me and struck the floor like a good solid human being. See? There is blood on the leg of the table. He hit it head on. The hermit of Fraser Canyon is not dead. He is some escape maniac. There is neither truth nor reason in his words or acts. That portrait is a lie. I don't believe he ever killed a woman or knew one that was killed. It is all a mad fantasy of his, an insane delusion. "'What do you say, Colonel Goff?' "'I—I I don't believe he ever saw a woman in his life.' 
said the man from New Hampshire dryly. Strange that a single sentence, neither wise nor very witty, could affect us so happily. But that light remark of the colonel acted as a sedative to our excited nerves. It brought us to our senses and normal condition. We were all ourselves again. Come, said the judge. Take the papers, Mr. Murray, and let us get out of this. Now that we know what this hole in the mountain is, I feel as if I were in a cell of some lunatic asylum. I will roll up the canvas and bring it along. It may help us discover who he is or where his friends are. We must find the poor fellow if we rally the country and hunt him a month. It is plainly a case of insanity. He's a scholar and an artist, but overwork or some accident has driven him mad. It is a pity that the blow he received when he fell didn't stun him. It would have saved us much searching. We did as the judge suggested, and left the cave much relieved in our feelings and well content with the outcome of our strange adventure. But we had not come to the end of it. It was to be a night of surprises, in fact, and the biggest one awaited us. For as we drew near the flat edge by the river, our campfire was burning brightly, and a man was sitting by it bathing his face in some water. It was the madman of the cave. Gentlemen, he said, addressing us as we approached, I am an artist. I was sketching the canyon by moonlight, and slipping fell from a ledge. I got here with great difficulty. I do not remember how, for I struck my head against a sharp rock as I fell, and was partially stunned. I saw your campfire and crawled to it, and have taken the liberty of using one of your napkins to free my face from blood. This was spoken in a feeble voice, but accurately and rationally, and we instantly realized that the blow he had received on his head as he jumped from the wall in the cave had restored him to the use of his faculties, but left the time between his accident and the recovery a blank. I am something of a surgeon, I said pleasantly, and with your permission I will assist you to dress your wound. And I stepped to his side. You are very kind, he returned feebly, very kind. I am grateful to God that the accident happened where it did, so near your camp, for I am feeling very weak, and I could not have crawled far. It was very foolish of me to spend a night alone in this gorge, but its sublimities attracted me irresistibly. I feel it is destined to be noted the world over, and I long to be the first to put on canvas a moonlight and sunrise view of it. If this blow should prove serious, he continued more feebly, looking up into my face as I was carefully removing the hair from the edges of the gash, my studio is in New Orleans. I have no relatives in this country but my betrothed, and here a slight flush came to his face. My betrothed is a lady of that city, a uh, Miss de Fontaine. He has fainted, I said quietly. Colonel Goff, pour me a spoonful from your brandy flask. End of chapter 14